uh, being dismissed uh, to Children's Church. We want to invite you to follow along with Scripture as I read the passage this morning uh, that we're going to be preaching in. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, uh, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said. Here I am, said Moses. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their suffering And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I will that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve the God. Serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, And now let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do. After that, he will let you go. 
And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall go, not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to ask that you would speak to us this morning. We ask that you would use the word of God. We thank you for the word of God, that it is living and active. We thank you that you have something for each one of us in this passage and that you reveal yourself and that you reveal your name. And that if you had not revealed yourself, we would not know who you are or what you have done. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. As some of you might know, our practice in the morning is to read through sections of Scripture. And it just so happens, uh, 19 weeks ago, we started reading through Exodus. And that was before I decided uh, to preach through Exodus. So we're reading through chapter 19 and we're preaching in chapter 3. But I really appreciated John's introduction this morning to chapter 19 uh, because it actually jogged something in my memory. One Uh, Obviously, these two passages are going to have a lot of overlap with the theme of the awesomeness of God. But two, the the memory that it jogged in me was when I was uh, a young boy, probably about 13 or 14 years ago. uh, And we lived out on Guam at that time with some missionary friends and and families around us in the neighborhood. And uh, I would go out and hang out with my, my best friend at the time, Joel. And uh, we would sleep over at his house. He would sleep over at my house. We do pretty much everything together. Uh, And his mom, and and this was back in the 90s, so, you know, you'd say, that's awesome. That, you know, not just cool, not just rad, but awesome was the the big word. And his mom would often say to us, and and she wasn't mean, she wasn't nasty, she wasn't punishing us, she was just being truthful. She She would often say, don't use that word. Use that word to refer to God. Because God, only God is truly awesome. And, and part of the point was, and, and this happens with many words in, in the English language, but, but when you use something over and over again, sometimes you, you um, uh, devalue the meaning of it or the meaning of it changes over time. I just saw something uh, the other day where, where somebody looked up in the Thetharis th- uh, uh, similar words that he could use for the word wicked. And it came up with words like good Cool, awesome, because it's how kids use the word today, right? You know, that was wicked cool, you know. Um, obviously not really what the person was looking for, but you, you can understand. And I'm not saying that's a wrong use of the word, but, but language takes on meaning over time. And the point was when you talk about things other than God as awesome, because only God is truly awesome in that immense sense of the word in that what it originally uh, is designed to convey that that sort of weightiness to it that is a a scary thing that is a sobering thing to walk into the presence of God to hear of God's glory to say of his majesty this is who he is it is awesome And my friend's mom, who was like a second mom to me, just didn't want us to cheapen the language. God is awesome. And we are going to see this in this passage this morning, that that the awesome God draws near to his people. God comes down and says to Moses, this is who I am. 
And this is what I am going to do. The Lord Himself, who reigns and rules from heaven, from His throne of glory, comes down and reveals Himself and gives His name so that we might know God is awesome. And and in that sense of the word, God alone is awesome. So, we want to talk today, who is God? Why is He drawing near? And then we'll end with some talk about the hand of God. Who is God? Many people have different views of who God is. Many people will tell you, yes, of course, I believe in God. I think your next question should be, if you're in one of those conversations, well, who is He? And see if they really know God. And not in an abstract sense of I know some things about him and I believe that he exists and he's up there. And I had someone tell me one time, you know, yeah, yeah, I believe in the big guy, but, but I kind of mind my own business. And if I leave him alone, he leaves me alone. And he didn't have a sense of the, the awesomeness of God, of the weightiness of God, that God is a personal being who draws near and makes himself known. Who is God? God comes to Moses here in the burning bush. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He had led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is another name uh, for Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burning up. So Moses is walking along. There's this bush over here crackling kind of in the distance. Moses kind of notices like, hey, something weird is going on here. This bush isn't burning up. I don't know if he watched it for a little while or if he could just tell, you know, this is a flaming, fiery bush, but, but none of the leaves are wrinkling up as, as they would. I don't, I don't know what exactly he saw, but it made him turn aside. The fire in the bush is the presence of the Lord. And so we see the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, angel here could mean messenger, but typically when it's the angel of the Lord, it is some kind of appearing or form of the Lord. It's some kind of manifestation uh, of his uh, of his presence. And so here it is that he's manifesting self, his presence in the flame, the fire in the bush is not sustained by the bush. Now, think about that, right? When you when you light a fire in your fireplace or outside at the campfire, what sustains and fuels the flames? The wood that you're putting on, right? If you don't keep putting wood into that fire, what happens to the fire? The fire dies down. The flames derive their existence from fuel. They derive their existence from the wood that burns. And so they consume the wood. And when the wood is gone, the fire goes away. And so if you want to keep a fire stoked, you continue to put fuel on it. This fire is not sustained by the bush. The fire is in the bush. But we might say it's not of the bush. It's not burning up the bush. It's not consuming the bush. The fire doesn't depend upon the bush. What does this illustrate to us? God does not 
depend upon things in creation for his existence. So God will say uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching before a bunch of pagans who have various different views of God. And, and this will similar things are echoed in the book of Isaiah that God doesn't need to eat. God doesn't need food to sustain himself. In fact, Acts 17.25 says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life uh, to all mankind and breath to ev- and breath and everything. Let me read that again. He gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. God gives everything. God is the sustainer of everything. God does not need things to sustain Himself. He doesn't need the bush to fuel His fiery presence of His glory. This illustrates to us that God is self-sufficient. That God is above His creation and is not in need of it. God did not create things because He was bored and He needed things. Or He needed us. God created things because He wanted to make things that He could delight in, but He did not need them. God doesn't get hungry and says, so well, I'm going to make a fruit tree so that I have something to eat. If you and I go without food for a few days or without water, we're going to get tired. We're going to get run down. God doesn't get weary. This is the awesomeness of God. What does the existence of God depend upon? Nothing but God Himself. And this will connect to this language of I am who I am. So, again, you have the picture of the fire. It's also a picture of the majesty and the glory of God. So, you'll see later on in the book of Exodus, when God comes down on the mountain, it says this, Now the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire, on the top of the mountain and in the sight of the people is God. Deuteronomy 4.24 For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous fire. Therefore know that, that today that He goes out before you as a consuming fire, He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So the picture of God's fire is a picture of the glory of God. And sometimes when the glory of God encounters uh, sinfulness, God determines to bring down judgment. And this is what he means by God being a consuming fire. There are times to protect and preserve and manifest and display the holiness, the purity, the righteousness of God. He will judge sin. There is a day of judgment coming where God will judge all sin. And you see hints of this in the Bible so that we might learn and know how awesome God truly is. This is not just an Old Testament concept. We find this in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, for our God is a consuming fire. And so this presence of God in the bush reveals the holiness of God. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. When the Lord saw, and he turned aside uh, to see, when Moses saw the Lord, yes, excuse me, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. 
Then he, God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. There's some similarities here in this text to later passages when, and earlier passages when God appeared in Genesis 22 uh, to Abraham. God says, Abraham, Abraham, that twice repetition of the name. And Abraham says, here I am. Uh, you'll remember what Samuel is told to say to God when God's voice calls to him in the tabernacle. You'll remember later on when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and asks to see the glory of God. What does God say? No man can see my face and live. We can't stand as sinful people in the presence of an awesome and holy God without the infiniteness of His perfection and holiness bringing that judgment. We can't in sin and our sinfulness draw near to God. This is who we are and this is who He is. It is like oil and water that doesn't mix. It's like two things that when you put them together, they are instantly combustible. God's holiness ultimately does not tolerate evil. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah sees the Lord in the throne. He hears the angels crying out, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This was Isaiah, who was serving in the priest as a temple, who had gone through all of the ceremonial purity of the Old Testament, and he encounters the presence of the living God. And the foundations of the temple shake. And he cries out, Woe is me! Who am I to stand before God? Do you ask yourself that question? Who am I to stand before God? If you think that it is in your ability and your capacity and your power to walk into the presence of God. You don't understand who God is. You're not captivated by His awesomeness. Now just as a spoiler alert, we'll get there. God has made a way for us to draw near to Him. But just think about who you are in your own sin. And do you understand that you and I not only don't deserve to go into the presence of a holy God. We can't go into a presence of a holy God when we have sin, when we have wickedness, where we have things that we've done that are wrong, lies that we've told, people that we've cheated, whatever it might be. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice here, when we're talking about who is God, notice that God gives His name. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face. You'll see this repeated over and over here. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who appeared to these people and made covenant promises with them. 
that he would allow them to go down to Egypt, but that one day he would bring them up out of Egypt, give them the promised land, and turn them into a great nation. This is God showing up and saying, I am going to do what I promise. This is who I am. Moses still has questions. Moses says to God, verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go to the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. So first here, you'll notice that that God says, um, uh, Moses says, if I come to the people in Israel and say, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask, what is your name? Notice this. Moses says, if I just go in there and say the God of your fathers, they're going to ask, who is this God? How do we know? I think one of the reasons for that is that it was not uncommon in the ancient world to speak about whatever God you worshipped as the God of your fathers. And Israel is right now surrounded by Egyptians and pagan worship is everywhere. And there are gods by all kinds of names. And perhaps even some of the Israelites were either tempted to worship these gods or maybe at times even did go and worship these gods. And so if Moses just shows up on the scene and says, the God of your fathers sent me, they're going to want to know who is this God? What's his name? And names are a way of, of giving a person's identity. In the ancient world, names often conveyed the character of the person. They're more than just a name. It, it could be a, a descriptor, if you will. And so Moses is given what to say. And Moses asks, I think, a very reasonable question. What is your name? First, it's not as if God had never made his name known before in Scripture. There are numerous passages, Genesis 15, 1 being one of them. After these things, the word of the Lord, and that's that word for Yahweh, the name of God, the word Yahweh or Jehovah, which, which in the Hebrew they write with a Y-H-W-H, it's, it's part of the name of God, as we'll see here in this passage. It's already mentioned in Genesis. The God says to him, to Abraham, I am the Lord, meaning I'm Yahweh, I'm Jehovah, who brought you up out from earth. So this name has been made known later on when the Lord appears uh, to, to Isaac and to Jacob. He'll say, I'm the God of your father Abraham. He'll say things like, fear not, for I am with you. Same language that, that Moses is told in, in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, Behold, later on, Genesis 28, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. This is that, that uh, when Moses is dreaming and he sees the ladder open up, he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. 
So God had already said that his name was Jehovah or, or Yahweh. Moses is asking a real question, but God isn't giving some sort of new information. Second, though, you will see a, a clarification, a, a better description, if you will, of what this name Yahweh means. Uh, in the Hebrew, Yahweh is a form of the word to be. We translate it into English as Lord, usually with all caps. Sometimes you'll see it translated into Jehovah to try to uh, represent the vowels and the consonants well. But, but just this Y-H-W-H, similar word can also, it's, it's a very common verb. It just means I am or to be. It's like the word is in the English language. And so Moses is told by God a better description of the name of God, Yahweh, the Lord. I am who I am. Now, some translations will translate this, I will be who I will be. It would kind of have the same meaning. It's just would use the future tense. Uh, the grammar in Hebrew is sometimes a little bit ambiguous, whether it's present tense, I am, or whether it's future tense, I will be. And then you'll notice, again, God summarizes, again, say to this people, I am has sent me to the Lord. Verse 15, then also, or has sent me to you. Verse 14, verse 15, say to this people, the Lord. Say to this people, Yahweh, the I am. So, so there's, there's three, if you will, repetitions of the name. I am who I am. Say that the I am sent you. Say that the Lord, which means I am, is with you or has sent you. And so, who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? Who is the God of the fathers? It is the Lord. Part of this name of God, the I am who I am, describes for us and conveys to us the self-sufficiency of God. The independent majesty and glory that God has. Who is God? He is. What is God dependent upon? Nothing. How does God exist? He just is who He is. He's the I am who I am. He is the entire self-sufficient One from who all things have come into being. All creation is made from God. Who made God? God just is. And, and we shouldn't even say God just was past tense for us, right? But God always is. I think even time is something that God has created. And so God will say that, that this is my eternal name. This is my name forever. And in the Scriptures, there are lots of names that God gives Himself to describe aspects of His character. Things like El Shaddai. Things like Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Uh, we could list a whole bunch of them. It's describing features and aspects of his character. Uh, just like someone, some of you might have nicknames that you pick up. Maybe you have a college nickname you picked up. that Mine was probably something like dork. I, I don't know. A uh, nerdy one. Um, because it describes a, a, an aspect of your character. But Tim or Timothy is the name my parents named me with. Another thing is God is the one who names himself. And in the ancient world, who you named defined who you had authority over. So you think about how Adam names the animals. Well, he has 
authority over them. Why do you as a parent name your children? Because you're the mom and the dad. Who names God? God. Who is God? He just is. Who is God in authority to? No one but Himself. There is no one or nothing in all of creation that this can be said of that is entirely independent, that is entirely self-sufficient, that does not need anything for existence, that does not derive energy or power or abilities from others. God is God. He is the I Am. He is this wonderful I Am who I Am. And so when you look at God and you think of His glory, you are seeing one who is so far above you. And He is so infinite in His perfections that how do we describe Him? He just is. He is the I Am who I Am. What is your view of God? Oh, we don't spend enough time thinking of God. We don't spend enough time meditating on His character. We don't spend enough time thinking of this majesty and glory that is so far above us. If anything, we are constantly trying to to bring God down to our level. We want to understand Him, but what tends to be that we want to wrap our minds around God. We want answers from God. Now God reveals Himself and tells us who He is, but if God didn't tell you who He is, you And I wouldn't know. That is awesome. We could spend a million years thinking about God, learning about Him from the Scriptures, sitting down with Him in heaven, and having Him reveal and disclose Himself to us. We could spend a million years doing that. And you would not exhaust what there is to know about God. The finite cannot contain the infinite. And you and I will spend all eternity growing in our knowledge of God. And there will always be more knowledge of God to know. More wonder to His character. More glory to His being. That is God. That should make you sit back and say, wow. Like our jaws should drop as we think of this. What is my view of God? Do I think of His holiness? How do I think of His holiness? Do I recognize my sin? And like Moses, I can't just waltz into the presence of God. Hey, I'm just going to come and check God out. We come on bended knees. We often don't think of God. We often don't meditate of Him. We often don't pray to Him as the One who is infinite in His perfections. I am is who God is. Or who He calls Himself to be. God doesn't need you in that sense. God isn't dependent upon you. God isn't bored in His life without you. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's the character Susan, and she runs into the beaver, and the character of God is portrayed as a lion, Aslan. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion, says the beaver, 
Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In that respect, God in his majesty and his awesomeness is not safe. But he is good. There is a fierceness to the majesty and the glory of God. And we're going to see this as we walk through the passage. I do want to just point out one thing very briefly. and I'm not going to prove it to you, but if you want to study it, I'll give you the verses if you want to know. In the Gospel of John, there's five or six occasions where Jesus says, I am. Now, there's a lot of places where Jesus will say things like, I am the shepherd, I am the door, I am the whatever. I am, and then he says something. But there are four or five or six places. And most of the time, your English will translate it, I am he, which is actually a reference to some verses in Isaiah as well. But the words in the Greek are simply, I am. Jesus says when he calms the storm, do not fear, I am. When they come to seize him and grab him and take him into Pharaoh, he says, I am. He is saying, I am the I am who I am. You see why we don't disconnect our Old Testament from our New Testament? Because if you want to know God, you've got to know the God of Exodus 3, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Second, I want you to see this. God is drawing near. Why is God drawing near. So, God has seen and heard. The Lord said, verse 7 and then verse 9, I surely have seen the afflictions uh, of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. We saw this last week in chapter 2. Verses 23 to 25, it sets up the narrative. You see this again, verse 16. Go and gather the elders and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me, I saying, I have observed you and what was done to you in Egypt. The NAS says, I am indeed concerned. The King James said, I have surely visited you. It's this idea of I am paying attention and I see what's going on and I care. God is not just revealing who he is in his name. He is revealing his character, that he is a God who cares. And he's going to keep this promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So go back to chapter three, verse eight. Notice this. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God not only is the I Am, but He is the God who comes down to act. He comes down to reveal Himself. This is me. See who I am. He comes down to save. The two main reasons in Scripture that God comes down is He comes down to judge and to save. In the book of Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah, 
It says that the cry of their sins, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, has gone up into heaven. And then it says, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry. And it's not that God in heaven didn't know and like is like, oh, well, I better get down there and see what's going on. He says something very similar at the Tower of Babel about going down, uh, which is ironic because they're building this huge tower to get to heaven. And God's like, I better go see what that tiny little thing is. But it's not that God didn't know. It's that God is showing up and he's going to take action. It's that he's going to judge the sin as he does at uh, the Tower of Babel, as he does uh, for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, as he's going to judge the Egyptians. But here specifically also, he's going to go down and he's going to lift up. He's going to raise out his people. I mean, this is a, a pattern and an image that you see all throughout Scripture. What does God do? He takes his people by his hands. He, he cares for them. He, he loves them and he brings them to himself. He carries them into his bosom. He describes himself as like a mother hen who, who nestles her, her little baby chicks underneath the wing and, and shuffles them in and protects them. You know, like when the mother duck crosses the street and the one little baby duck gets sort of left behind and the mother duck will stand in the middle of the street and like stare down the cars until that baby duck gets across. And, and you, man, geese and ducks, but geese especially, like they're nasty if you try to get near their kids, right? God does this for his children. We would be remiss if this passage didn't make us think about the ultimate way that God comes down. He comes down in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who is that I am, takes on true humanity. He becomes one of us in every respect, yet without sin, so that we can see Him, that we can hold Him, that we can touch Him. He comes down. And in order so that we can go up to God, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, dies on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin. God judges my sin in Jesus. Because God loved me so much, He sent His Son so that those who believe in Him might be saved. That God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that He is truly the Son of God? Lots of people believe that He was a man that walked the earth. That He was some kind of special guy who just did some, some miracles. Or maybe He faked the miracles. But the Bible says, and Jesus in his life testifies, he says, I am the I am. He is truly God coming down to save his people so that God saw us in the misery of our sins. He saw that if his holiness was going to be anywhere near us, it would lead to our eradication, to our judgment, to a judging of sin. And he said, I want to save a people. I want to have fellowship with the people. And so the Son draws near 
to deliver us not from our bondage to Egypt, but from our bondage to the slavery of sin. That we were dead in our sins and we enjoyed sin and we didn't want anything to do with an awesome holy God. And what does God do? God comes and saves. And He offers salvation to each and every one of us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He died on the cross for your sins. Invite Him into your heart, asking Him to forgive those sins. Confess that He is Savior and Lord, that He is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And come before Him on bended knee. Come before Him like Isaiah did. Come before Him like Moses did, in, in a sense. You know, taking off your shoes. Bowing to His holiness and His majesty and saying, God, I need You to save me. Hear my cry for deliverance. And God will hear it just like He heard the cry of the Israelites. This is God. That He is infinite in His majesty and His perfections. And He is magnificent in His grace and in His mercy. God is the God who saves. Notice how the passage ends, and this will actually lead into a major theme later. So I'm just going to kind of give this out as a teaser. This idea that God will display His power. He's going to compel the Pharaoh. So it says in verse 19 and 20, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it after that. He will let you go. Later on, he'll say to the Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You really have two options in this life. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because you understand his holiness you understand who God is and you receive the forgiveness of sins and your sins are washed away. You never have to be terrified of God. You will never be separated from God as God has cleansed you in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be His child, His son, destined to an inheritance. Or, You can stand like Pharaoh and others in opposition to God and realize that the holiness of God, which is good, which is perfect, will come against you because of your sin. If you know who God is, you don't take sin lightly. You understand His glory. You understand His majesty. It leaves you sometimes a little bit a little bit scared. A little bit in fearful, reverent awe. Just like you might go into court and fear what the judge is going to say. But if the Lord washes away your sin and you come to Him through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you come before Him, not in your own innocence, but an innocence and forgiveness that was given to you by Jesus. 
We don't like, in our day and age, a God who is holy. We don't like, in our day and age, a God who has a mighty hand and can do what he wants. We want a God dependent upon us, beholden to our beck and call, who does whatever we want whenever we say. Now, God answers prayer. Don't misunderstand me. But God is not a puppy dog that we keep on a leash and take him out when we want to have fun and put him back in the kennel the rest of the week. God is the awesome and mighty one, the I am who I am. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan, and he rebelled against God, and after the Lord got his attention and made him crazy for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar said this, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants on the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among Uh, the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? A pagan recognized the living God and said, I can't stop God or question him or call him to my account. I have to acknowledge his greatness. I have to praise him. How do you praise the Lord in your life? How do you lift up His name? Is He the awesome Holy One, the I Am who I am? If you come to the Lord through Jesus, the only way to come to the Lord is through Jesus. But if and when you come to the Lord through Jesus, God makes peace with you, but we never lose sight of the awesomeness of God. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you'd watch over us. We pray that you'd uh, keep us safe and protect us, Lord. We just ask that you would give us this insight, this vision, if you will, this, this understanding of your awesomeness, that we would fear you in a, in a right way a little more, that we would hold you in high esteem and regard and, and look up to you as the infinite and perfect one and not try to drag you down onto our level. Show us how good you are. Show us how immense you are in your perfections, but that you, the good God, would make yourself known and show us your character, most of all, in the abundance of your love and your grace and your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.